You are listening to the Kirkwood Chronicles, inspired by the ridiculousness of my childhood imagination. Season 1, Episode 8, Sedition and the CSS. Viera Sable. Law enforcement officers crowded the waiting room of East Tavor Hospital and Emergency Services. Though they kept their distance from Viera Sable, they still formed a protective wall that shielded her from the throng of press that squabbled outside the hospital's visitor entrance. Relatives and friends of other patients struggled to push through the throng as they came into the hospital, but even they were harassed by the inconsiderate reporters barking like ravenous dogs for information. Every so often, light would flash in the night behind the wall of officers as a photographer outside managed to take a quick shot of the renowned supermodel. Officers shouted over the frantic press as they kept them at bay, Back up! Back up! But it was a back-and-forth movement, resembling a game of evenly-sided tug-of-war. The press lobbed questions like mortar rounds over the officers in a desperate attempt to provoke a response, any response, from Viera Sable. She noticed none of them. She sat slumped in her chair and stared at the blank wall in shock. The doctor's dreadful words still rung in her ears. I'm sorry, Miss Sable. We did everything we could, but we lost her. Leah Redwood, her assistant, and even more, her friend, was dead, killed by an assassin's blaster round that was intended for her. No tears came. No grief was felt, just that familiar, cold numbness. Her bodyguard, Lex Artman, kept an eye on her from down the nearby hallway. He was busy calling Leah's family members and sharing the terrible news. He was considerate to be far enough away to keep her from overhearing the conversations. Viera was well acquainted with death. Too acquainted. How many family members and friends had she known die in Vildrica during the resistance and the Third Armapleb War that followed? She had lost count. Yet this time was different. Back in Vildrica, the Armapleb had openly flexed their power. They had been an obvious evil, a clear enemy. But... Viera did not know the assassin who had taken Leah's life while attempting to take hers. Such an unknown enemy left her chilled to the core and reeling to make sense of it all. Guilt bubbled up within her. It seeped into her thoughts and poisoned her mind. She could not help but think, It should have been me in that operating room. It should not have been Leah. It should have been me. Her face fell into her hands, and she fought to breathe past the feeling of constriction in her chest. She gritted her teeth. I'm so sorry, Leah. If I had known, if I had only known Lex would tackle me. Then a memory stirred up to counter the guilt. The memory burned brilliantly as if she was reliving it. She was a little girl that wept on the cold concrete floor. 
She felt her father's strong arms wrap around her and pull her against him. It's, it's not fair, she cried. It's, it's not fair. Mama wasn't fighting. She was trying to help the wounded. I, I know my wildflower, her father choked. The armapleb knew that too. If the hospital continued to stand, they would have just... They would just have to fight the wounded again in the future. Your mother knew what she was doing. She was brave. I wish I had been there instead of her, she lamented. I wish I had been the one helping the wounded. She said I was almost old enough. I should have been in there, not her. Listen to me, my wildflower, her father said softly. It is for charity that you would wish to die for your mother, but remember what she taught you. Charity bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Charity never fails. She would want us to continue living with charity, not with regret and guilt. I, I know, Daddy, she whimpered. Since you cannot die for your mother, promise me you'll live for her. Promise me. I promise. Viera lifted her head and came back to the present reality of the hospital's waiting room. The constriction in her chest loosened. She became a little more aware of her surroundings. The law enforcement officers struggled to keep the press at bay outside as a heightened outburst of shouting arose. Through the windows in the blackness of night, the occasional flash of a camera became the intensity of a strobe light. The frenzied cries rolled in from outside and echoed in the waiting room. Prince Dashingson! Prince Dashingson, why are you here? Are you here to see Viera Sable? Viera watched as the wall of officers parted to allow Prince Lordly Dashingson inside. He was accompanied by his own security detail, which surrounded him like a protective shell. A confusion of emotions stirred in Viera at the sight of him. She recalled agreeing to be the prince's date for the upcoming Barbican annual royal fundraiser, but she also recalled Sir Aaron enlightening her as to the details of what that date would cost her. She remembered how warm her conversation over dinner had been with the prince, but she also felt the distrust that Sir Aaron had ceded towards the Barbican man. The prince locked eyes with her, walked over, and cupped her hand in his. He radiated a comforting sympathy as he spoke. I came as soon as I heard what happened. Oh, Viera, I am so sorry. If there's anything I can do to help, that is why I have come, to give my support to you. Viera asked, Who would do this, Dully? Time will tell, but I promise you, I will help find them. Viera felt the bitter words roll off her tongue. They tried killing me, but they killed Leah instead. They killed my friend. She was just an assistant, standing in the wrong place at the wrong time. Pain distorted the prince's handsome face. He pulled her into a tight hug, but she did not hug him back. She said, We need to talk, Dali. Somewhere more private. Viera motioned to Lex and mouthed that she was going to talk to Prince Dashingson. 
He nodded at her while on his phone. She walked across the waiting room with the prince and entered the small prayer chapel in the far corner. The room was empty, and she closed the door behind her. Are you a God-fearing person, Dali? Vera asked. The prince shook his head softly. I can't say that I am. I'm Barbican, after all. Well, that's okay, Vera said. But I am. Please know that I am speaking openly with you. With God as my accountability and my help. The prince nodded. Very well. When I told Leah that I had agreed to be your date to the fundraiser, she called a Sir Aaron Roseprick. Do you know the man? His eyes narrowed in a look of questioning. Yes, of course. He's a fellow Barbican and the public relations officer for the fabulously supreme queen. Why did Leah call him? To call in a favor, because I knew nothing of the fundraiser. The prince leaned back in surprise. Vera explained, I know, I know. Leah was dumbfounded too, but she believed Sir Aaron could help teach me about the fundraiser. Was she wrong to think that? I suppose not, the prince said. Sir Aaron is a master of etiquette and poise. No one else could prepare you for the intricacies of the fundraiser like him. Anger lurched inside Viera, and she began to tremble, but she kept her tone calm. Dali, you know that I intend to give myself to my husband in the future. You watched the interview with Gregory Flambusterson. I was not lying for publicity. Sir Aaron mocked me for agreeing to be your date. The prince's brow twitched in a slight indication of alarm. He interjected, You told Sir Aaron that you would be my date to the fundraiser? Yes, and he told me about the second half of the event. He mocked me for agreeing to be your date because of my ignorance. He told me of the weird rituals. He told me how it all ends with an, with an orgy of dominance. Do you seriously expect me to accompany you through all of that? A look of realization alighted the prince's face. He ran fingers through his hair, took a step away from her, and began to pace back and forth in the chapel. He said, I think I understand. I wish you had not learned such things from Sir Aaron, but it does not matter anyway. The Queen surely knows that I visited you in the hospital just now, because the news channels will be blaring it for the whole Union to know. Forgive me, Viera. Permit me to clarify. You going through uh, uh, the entire fundraiser with me is not needed for me to uphold my end of our agreement. Viera questioned. But, but how can that be? Sir Aaron said the point of the event was to, metaphorically and literally, pull strings, to gain support from those you need to woo. The stuff leading up to the dominance at the end sounded like, like a perverted process of, for lack of a better word, arousing the right people. Do you not intend to use me in such a way? To Vieira's surprise, Dali chuckled. It was not a sound that conveyed amusement, but instead sadness, and perhaps a tone of anger, too. Yet she did not feel like the anger was towards her, but with himself. Uh, no, Viera. 
Again, forgive me. His face flushed red. He curled his hands into fists only to relax them and repeat the action. I intended to use you so that I would stop being used in that way. I am Her Majesty's favorite lover, Viera, and she delights in using me in whatever way to satisfy her own selfish whims. I am her most intimate plaything, but, being so close to Her Majesty, I have learned things. The Queen has taken note of you. She's intimidated by you, Viera, and your homeland of Vilderka. Who do you think paid Gregory Flambusterson to slander you on television? Who do you think uses the CSS to conduct operations against Vilderka? It would not surprise me if, once she learned from Sir Aaron that you were going to be my date, she ordered the hit on you that resulted in the death of your friend. Viera bristled in anger. So, Sir Aaron was responsible for Leah's murder. Not any more than I would be. Sir Aaron serves as both messenger and advisor to the Queen. If she ordered the hit, it would not be because Sir Aaron advised it. On the contrary. Anger burned stronger in her. Her head began to spin with questions and accusations, but she fought to stay focused. How would... How would Sir Aaron not be any more responsible than you for Leah's death? You're asking a pointless question, Viera. The Queen is to blame for your friend's death. She is to blame for the loss of many lives. Some are just more fortunate than others to no longer be breathing afterwards. Her anger now boiled inside. She was angry with the Prince, with Sir Aaron, and with the Queen, and with the entire Central Union. The Prince noticed, and continued, I... I asked you to be my date, Viera, because I am planning to move against the Queen during the fundraiser. She will be undermined by jealousy when she sees you by my side, because what she will see, with you beside me, even if it's a facade, is devotion. And that, Viera, is the one thing Her Majesty does not have from me. In that moment, I want her to feel what the entire Central Union will soon see, that our queen is weak and insecure. I'm... I'm sorry for not being completely honest with you until now. Vieira struggled to make sense of his words. It helped knowing that he did not intend to use her sexually for political gain, but she did not know which was worse being used sexually like she had originally feared, or being used as a weapon against the queen, to help the prince undermine the royal crown. For the prince to openly admit that he intended to move against the queen was sedition. The prince lowered his head. I only need you by my side, while the cameras are on at the start of the fundraiser, as we present ourselves to the queen. I need that royal witch to see. I need the world to see. I need my freedom. And I'm not the only one. I hope you, of all people, understand. Viera steamed. I don't understand. 
You want to use me to publicly slap the queen, and somehow you think this will result in your freedom and the recognition of my country's independence. I don't understand. The prince looked at her and smiled sadly. Then you must not understand pride, least of all Barbican pride. The earthkin god teaches you what? Love your enemy? Bless those who persecute you? Does he not? Well, the Barbican elitists believe this. Have no enemies. Bless others because you are impervious to persecution. His point confused her. But after a moment of thinking, she understood what he meant. Some of what Sir Aaron had taught her the day before, about the culture of the Barbican elite, helped her interpret his meaning. The queen would guard her own perfection so vehemently, especially in the eyes of the aristocracy and the public, that she could potentially convince herself that losing both her favorite lover and affirming Vildrican independence at the same time would not cost her anything. Viera remembered Leah's last words to her as they were rushing to the hospital. Fight, Viera. Fight for Vilderka. Promise me. Promise. A growing realization arose within Viera as to what Leah had tried telling her in that moment, and it complemented nicely with what the prince had shared. Leah had been the best assistant and friend Viera could have asked for, she had always strived to give guidance and create discipline. She wanted Viera to honor her death by letting her continue to be those things, despite being gone. Even in her last moment, Leah had given her death to Viera as guidance and discipline. Viera inhaled slowly and whispered beneath her breath to her friend in the beyond, I promise you, dearest friend, I will fight. Her heart ached as she found resolve in the words. Then she squared her shoulders, held her head high, and said to the prince, Thank you for your honesty, Dali. If I'm going to play the part of your date and help you succeed during the fundraiser, I need to make sure my role is convincing. I have more learning to do, so it seems I will be paying a certain someone another visit tomorrow. Julia Weatherton The sky shone blue and clear through the glass ceiling above. Palm trees provided shade for Julia as she plopped herself down in a recliner by the glistening pool and took a moment to catch her breath. Her legs ached. Her face ached. Her entire body ached. She rubbed her nose and noticed the flakes of dried blood on her finger. Her cheek was swollen from where she had taken the hard blow of an elbow. She groaned as she tried to find a more comfortable position on the recliner. Bruises dotted her side from yesterday's scuffle with none other than John Anvil, her former partner in the CSS, that was pretending to be Viera Sable's bodyguard. The thought of his name caused her heart to contribute to the pain she felt all over. Nearby, Sir Aaron came up from his dive in the pool. His shirtless upper half glistened in the bright sunlight coming in through the glass ceiling. He whipped back his wet blonde hair to keep it from falling in his eyes. Though skinny, he had a touch of fitness to his body that kept him from looking weak. 
he said. Oh, you look terrible, sweetheart. Feel free to explain yourself. She said, Well, let's start with that moron Luke Stoneflex. He refused to do the assignment with me, Sir Aaron. There was nothing I could say to convince him otherwise. I swear, he just walked out on me early yesterday morning and said, Call me when you're ready to take down the real bad guy. Sir Aaron flashed what looked to be an expression of surprise, but it had a hint of exaggeration, which she failed to notice. Mr. Stoneflake said that? Yes, unbelievable, I know. The buffoon thought he could just go off and uncover Prince Dashingson's activity by himself. No, sweetheart, Sir Aaron corrected her. Very believable. Mr. Stoneflex reported to me earlier this morning. He did uncover more of Prince Dashingson's activity. He went to Dinor last night and followed a possible lead on the Arachnopleb shipment. Julia felt the steam against Luke Stoneflex leave her in a single puff as she listened in disbelief. She pushed herself up into a sitting position and inquired, well, what, what did he learn? Do you remember Neil Bloodfoot, the crime lord that you and Detective Blackwing were trailing before I hired you? Yes. Well, Mr. Stoneflex squeezed that zit of a man for all the juicy filth he held. Turns out, Bloodfoot helped in smuggling the arachnopleb through Dinor and into Tavor. Prince Dashingson paid the greaseball a truckload of centros for his effort. Bloodfoot even gave Mr. Stoneflex the delivery address after he got most of his teeth knocked out. Oh, it's impressive he could speak afterwards, really. Julia stared at Sir Aaron in a loss for words. Oh, I know, Sir Aaron smiled gleefully. Mr. Stoneflex is such a ruthless brute. I love him for it. But enough about him. Tell me what you managed to accomplish. Bile lurched up into her throat, and she swallowed it down. She felt suddenly nervous in Sir Aaron's calm presence. She had hoped that by sharing how Luke Stoneflakes abandoned the assignment, she would have made it easier to talk about how she failed to kill Vera Sable. She explained, Everything was going as planned. I scoped out the cinema building before I attempted the hit. I thoroughly noted all of the security personnel beforehand. Vera Sable stopped directly in front of me. I had my blaster aimed right between her stupidly gorgeous eyes. Sir Aaron put his elbows against the side of the pool, rested his chin in his hands, and interjected, Oh my goodness, her eyes! Yes! Then, what happened? Julia gritted her teeth and continued, Vieira's bodyguard came out of nowhere and tackled her out of the way just as I took my shot. When I made my escape, he managed to track me down, and we got into a fight in an alley. Bitterness towards herself bubbled up within her. She put a hand over her face and said, It turns out, Vieira's bodyguard is actually a CSS agent operating undercover. Sir Aaron straightened up and cried in alarm. Wait, what? How do you know? Because he was my partner in the Central Special Services. 
He is also the reason I lost my former job in the CSS. The bodyguard is John Anvil. Sir Aaron's jaw dropped, and his brilliant violet eyes went wide. He began to pace in the shallow end of the pool, water sloshing around his waist as he did. He kept one limp wrist up and waved it about as he thought aloud. I've seen nothing from the CSS that they are involving themselves with Vieira Sable, which means they're keeping such an operation from the royal crown. How rude! How rebellious! After the void gown went missing, I have pored over their activity logs for any kind of clue or hint that might help in locating it. Why would they conceal such an operation? She gave in to the bitterness and let it surface. I'm, I'm not sure. John Anvil showing up changes everything. I accept full responsibility for my failure. I'm not sure if I'm qualified anymore for this assignment, and I'm ready to accept the consequences entailed with termination. Sir Aaron tilted his head at her and shot her a reproving look. Stop overreacting, sweetheart. But I failed your order to kill Vieira Sable. Yes, but that order did not come from me, remember? Julia stammered for a second. What? I... Then shut her mouth. Sir Aaron rambled on. Oh, don't get me wrong. Her fabulously supreme majesty was furious about it. But there is a reason I make a better advisor than I do messenger. She should have listened to me. I like Miss Sable, especially after getting to meet her. She's my hottie boo. So, Julia pondered tentatively, you're not upset with me? Of course not. Well, actually, he turned his back to her, let out a soft sob, and moved his arms as if he was wiping tears from his eyes. He said over his shoulder without looking at her, I am upset that you killed Leah Redwood. I know it was an accident, but she was my little muffin. He took a minute, splashed his face with water, then recomposed his posture and turned it to face her again. But you are forgiven because you are attempting to enforce Her Majesty's will. Being a privileged servant to the royal crown does not come without cost. Julia felt a flicker of guilt in her chest. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, she muttered. She knew she sounded pathetic. Stop. We're moving on. You still accomplished the intentions behind Her Majesty's order by troubling the waters. In the process, we also learned something new about the CSS, which was totally worth it. He grinned at her and said with a beckoning finger, What you need now is a nice, refreshing dip in this pool. She shook her head and said, the last thing I want to do right now is get in that pool. Oh, lighten up, sweetheart. You look like an alley cat attacked your face only to take a crap on it afterwards. You obviously feel that way, too. Like a typical earthkin, you suck at hiding it. Wash it all away. Get in. But, she argued, I don't have a swimsuit. Sir Aaron sighed impatiently. <sighs> 
and bobbed for a second in the water with a look of concentration on his face. Then, his speedo floated up to the surface. There, now, I don't either. He turned his back to give her privacy and said, Get in. Fine. She stood up, peeled her dirty clothes off, and dropped them on the recliner. Then she eased her nakedness into the pool. The heated water lapped over her sore body. It felt amazing on her weary muscles. Sir Aaron turned around to smile at her. As he did, a knock came from his office door. Oh, that's my next appointment, he said with a wry glint in his eye. Appointment? Julia exclaimed in alarm, feeling suddenly vulnerable and exposed in the pool. He laughed and muttered aloud to himself, Earthkin, so prude, then yelled to the door, Come in! The office door opened, and to Julia's utter horror, none other than both Vera Sable and John Anvil entered the room. The supermodel glanced around the office and raised an eyebrow in surprise when she noticed the two of them in the pool. Beside her, John Anvil looked straight at Julia, and a smirk broke out across his handsome face. Julia pressed herself against the edge of the pool and used it as cover. Meanwhile, Sir Aaron exemplified the stereotype of Barbican brazenness by pulling himself buck naked out of the pool. He trotted over to his new guests with arms wide. First, he greeted Vera Sable, who visibly stiffened at his unashamed approach. She closed her eyes as he planted a kiss on her cheek. Hottie Boo, I'm so glad you're safe. I was so worried about you when I saw the news, and so relieved when I got your call. Thank you, Vera said stiffly. Also, my heart aches alongside yours with what happened to Miss Redwood. If there's anything I can do. Thank you, Vera said again, but appeared to be not at all thankful that he would mention the name of Miss Redwood while standing naked in front of her. Then Sir Aaron placed both hands on his bare hips, turned to John Anvil, and asked, And who is this handsome devil with you? This is Lex Artman, my bodyguard, Vera said, and turned on her heels, obviously eager to move her attention away from Sir Aaron. The supermodel was so naive about the so-called bodyguard beside her that Julia would have found it cute if she did not feel a strong aversion towards the woman. Sir Aaron shook the man's hand. Mr. Artman, I can see why you're a bodyguard. You look as strong and sturdy as an anvil. Ooh, Anvil. I like the ring of that. I'll have to use it to make a pet name for you. John smiled at Sir Aaron's sly use of his real name and quipped back, uh, I'm just a nobody John Doe that's really good at his job. If anybody wants a shot at this lady, he threw a thumb towards Vieira while glancing at Julia. They've got to get through me. John chuckled at his own veiled jab. Anger stirred deep within Julia. Sir Aaron laughed. Vera said, If we are interrupting, she motioned towards Julia, we can come back. Yes, please, come back later, Julia thought to herself. A tiny bubble of liking for Vera arose within her. Sir Aaron popped it. Nonsense! You're not interrupting anything! 
This is my assistant, Julia Weatherton. You see, Mr. Artman, he tilted his head towards John Anvil to include him in the discussion. She is in need of a good bodyguard, too. She got roughed up by her ex, and I was just advising her how to hit him back. John nodded and gave Julia a look of mock sympathy. I see. Meanwhile, Viera remained oblivious to Sir Aaron's subtle jabs against the bodyguard's real identity. She still looked as if she needed every reason not to face Sir Aaron. She waved at Julia and said politely, I'm so sorry to hear about your ex. I'm Viera Sable. It's nice to meet you. Julia tried her best not to sound too flustered or overly suspicious. Oh, I know who you are. It's nice to meet you too. Viera paused and tilted her head. She studied Julia more intently. You look familiar. Have we met before? Julia resisted the urge to cringe and to submerge herself entirely in the water of the pool. Viera's so-called bodyguard, John Anvil, disguised his bemused snort as a cough. The supermodel didn't notice. I don't think we've met. But you did pass by me during your first appointment with Sir Aaron, Julia lied. Viera resumed her smile and said, Ah, yes, that would make sense. Sir Aaron placed a hand on Viera's shoulder and said, Now that we're done with introductions, are you ready to start your next lesson for the coming fundraiser? The supermodel nodded. Sir Aaron said to John, Mr. Artman, please leave. John questioned Viera with a look. The supermodel nodded her agreement, and he left the office, but not before glaring at Julia with a look so threatening that it caused her to shrink a little deeper into the pool. The moment the office door closed, Sir Aaron smacked the supermodel on her butt and asked, Did you bring your swimsuit? Viera recomposed her straight posture and said, Yes, but at no point will I be removing it. Good and fine. Now, strip. Vera complied and disrobed to reveal a metallic turquoise bikini that matched the color of her eyes while bearing the subtle design of peacock feathers. The woman's ridiculously breathtaking level of beauty made Julia's guts tighten as she thought about John Anvil being around her all the time. For being someone who made millions posing half-naked in front of cameras, the supermodel held herself in that moment like a timid nun. Interacting with Sir Aaron's absurdly extra amount of confidence was clearly off-putting for her. Julia inwardly delighted in Viera's unmistakable awkwardness. Sir Aaron cupped his face in his hands as he eyed the supermodel. Oh my goodness, Miss Sable, you are a goddess. So, act like it. Straighten your back. Level your shoulders. Make that generous chest pop. There you go, hottie boo. Just like that. Now that Vera appeared taller and prouder, looking like a mythological Amazonian princess, Sir Aaron said, Today's lesson will be about understanding the intricacies of being both appropriately pious and lewd during the Barbican Annual Royal Fundraiser, especially once the cameras turn off. Meanwhile, he pointed to Julia. 
Miss Weatherton there will help illustrate what not to be like during the lesson. Julia swallowed the annoyance with Sir Aaron that flared up in her. After accidentally killing the man's little muffin, she accepted the fact that she probably deserved how he was treating her today. Sir Aaron turned, sprinted, and dove back into the pool. He surfaced and beckoned for the supermodel to follow. Jump on in! It's time to start our next lesson. Luke Stoneflex There was Tavor with her majestic skyscrapers and flashing lights, but in stark contrast directly to the east with its dilapidated warehouses, outdated factories, and crumbling power plants, there was Fovor. In its glory days, Fovor used to be the entry point for all immigrants coming to Kirkwood. Earthkin space shuttles, Legiokin star skippers, and Barbican void carriages used to dock one after another in the old spaceports here, which loomed over the city as giant concrete sentries. But then, alien species from all over the galaxy began to immigrate to the planet of Kirkwood as well in the hopes of building a new and prosperous life in the Central Union. The influx of strangers created a strain on Fovor. In time, an enclosure was built around the city to help contain and control the overwhelming increase in immigrants. Incoming immigrants from the three kin races, the Barbican, the Legiokin, and the Earthkin, were redirected elsewhere for entry to the planet. But, Almost 100% of alien species trying to gain lawful entry to the planet were directed here, and almost 100% of the same never left Fovor. It was a massive slum. Despite past policies enforced with good intentions, Fovor now operated as an indefinite holding pen for alien species that the Central Union simply did not know what to do with. The city belonged to the Central Union by claim, but not by reason of reality. The local magistracy behaved no different than the innumerable alien tribes that warred for control of the slum. Thus, Luke Stoneflex conceded that Fovor, which bordered Tavor, was the perfect hiding place for a smuggled shipment of arachnopleb. He stared at the decrepit warehouse across the street from him. Yup, it was perfect. Beneath the pale moonlight, the building looked the same as any other former warehouse in Fulvor, except for some differences to the observant eye. There were no shacks built in and around it. There were no fires dotted throughout its slanted stories giving off light and signs of life, however poor and bleak. There were no dirty tents and shanties spilling out of the old warehouse like garbage bags from an overflowing dumpster. Instead, there was only a cold and silent blackness inside the decrepit warehouse. Although there were some shanties and tents erected outside, along the perimeter of the warehouse, these too were devoid of life. Most had collapsed in on themselves. The entire block was far too quiet too dead for being in the middle of an overpopulated slum. The wind moaned eerily as it tossed up trash in the street. Luke double-checked the address that Bloodfoot had given him and looked at his partner, Julia Weatherton. Well, 
This is it, he said. Yeah, she said with a look of dismay. Looks like it would be. Luke readjusted his armored vest and rehearsed where his weapons and ammo were on his person. Blunder blaster at his side? Check. Old-fashioned magnum revolver holstered on his lower back? Check. Machete on his chest? Check. Grenades? Check. Heavy repeaters slung over his shoulder? Check. Beside him, Julia still sported the Spec Ops suit she had worn during their assault on the Armapleb compound in Garagath. Unlike him, she had managed to keep it in decent condition. She had also restocked her impressive assortment of weaponry. Are you ready? he asked. She remarked smartly, You're bothering to ask this time? He chuckled sheepishly and rubbed the back of his neck. Despite her jab at him, he noticed that she seemed more relaxed around him, ever since Sir Aaron had forced them to reunite earlier in Tavor. Hey, before we go in there, Luke said, I just wanted to say that I'm glad you failed in assassinating that supermodel chick, but I'm not happy you killed her assistant, even if it was unintentional. She refused to look at him and shook her head. You're the second person that has told me that. Then you need to hear it. You're on your second strike with me, Luke growled. Second? When was the first strike? Trying to kill the supermodel chick, he raised one finger. Then killing her assistant, he raised a second finger. He tilted his head down at her and gave her a cold eye. I know you measure a good job by simply following orders, but there is nothing good about killing. So, from now on, make sure you kill bad guys. One more strike. Then, you and me, we're gonna have problems. To his surprise, Julia looked up at him with furrowed brow. I'm sorry, she muttered. Were those tears in her eyes? Was she about to start crying? You were right. You did a good job in Dinor, investigating Bloodfoot. I should have followed your lead. If I had just slowed down, I could have learned about John Anvil being Viera's bodyguard without trying to kill her. Tears seeped from both eyes and ran down her cheeks. She wiped them away with the back of her hand. Luke shifted his stance and fiddled with his fingers. Uh, okay then. Glad you understand. Are we good as partners? Julia asked. Yeah, we're cool. For now. Just remember... Don't get in my way if we run into anything in there that's obviously bad. For the first time working together, Luke saw Julia smile and laugh softly. That's a first, he thought. Luke took point as they crossed the street and carefully checked the collapsed tents and shanties for people or traps. When he was sure that the perimeter was clear, he approached a rusty steel door to the warehouse. Julia crouched by the door and pulled out a lock-picking device from her person. But Luke beat her to the point when he threw himself against the door and sent it flying off its hinges. It crashed loudly on the floor inside. 
A muscle flexed on Julia's jaw, but she did not say anything. They both activated their night vision and rushed inside, ready for a fight. As they did, they encountered thick resistance. Not defensive gunfire, but a sudden and rancid odor. They both coughed and gagged. The pungent smell could be likened to the stench of an unmaintained zoo mingled with a porta potty at an overcrowded concert and rotten meat. Even if they didn't have their night vision, it would not have taken them long to locate the giant cages inside the warehouse. They could have followed the sound of buzzing flies and the noise of moist squirming caused by innumerable maggots. There were four cages, the thick crisscrossing bars of which were bent and mangled in places. The inside of each was beyond filthy. Clumps of dark, matted hair blanketed the floor, where both animal and alien bones lay scattered, broken and gnawed clean of meat. There was an abundance of poop and shredded clothing everywhere. But no arachnopleb, Julia pondered aloud. No, but they were here. Luke pointed out a fragmented arachnopleb skull, then another. There was a mixture of arachnopleb bones, all of which were different sizes with the other remains. The horrific hound-like skulls with massively large eye sockets were obvious to spot once noticed. Some of them were the size of a car tire. Luke commented, My guess? They fed on each other as they matured. They would not have liked being so closely confined. Probably was like containing a spider's egg sac when it hatches. Babies get hungry fast. Julia visibly shuddered. Good. That means fewer for us to deal with. Not good, Luke countered. That means those still alive will have experience fighting formidable opponents, and, because they're fewer, they'll be easier to move around and keep hidden until the fundraiser. Julia said, I'll try to estimate a number of losses from their remains as we look for clues. Then she got to work tiptoeing through the filth in the cages. At one point she inquired, Hey, what's with the alien bones? I suppose whoever was feeding the arachnopleb ran out of animals and resorted to kidnapping those living in the tents and shanties outside. Julia retched several times before she recomposed herself. Wouldn't the locals outside have heard the arachnopleb, though? By the condition of these cages, surely those monsters caused a racket. Again, you would be wrong, Luke explained. The arachnopleb are silent creatures. The more threatened they feel, the more noiseless they become. How do you know so much about them? Julia asked. Did you encounter one during the war? Sort of. One of them creeped on my company for a month. Luke kicked around a pile of bones. All I encountered was a glimpse of its long, hairy arm as it snatched away one of my comrades. Four good men disappeared that night, and two more were mangled bad enough to be sent home for good. I wish... But Luke stopped talking when something beneath his boot caught his eye. It was a soiled section of cloth. Not just any cloth, though. It was a section of what resembled clothing. Something metallic reflected his flashlight from the clothing. A button? No. 
It was a brooch. Upon closer inspection, the clothing looked to be a fragment of a uniform, but he did not recognize it as something he saw from his service in the Central Common Guard. Neither was the brooch familiar. Whoever the uniform and brooch belonged to was probably nothing more now than splintered and gnawed up bones. Hey, come here and look at this, Luke said. Bones crunched as Julia approached and glanced down at the scrap of uniform beneath his heel. She gasped. That's, that's a CSS brooch! So concludes this episode of the Kirkwood Chronicles, written and read by me, Nathaniel Thompson. Musical introduction by Luke Thompson. Please follow along in episode 9 for the continuation of the story. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, be sure to like and subscribe. Also, for concept art and news about the podcast, be sure to follow this work on Instagram at the Kirkwood Chronicles. Thank you for listening, and may God bless your day.